0: As I said, we're talking about fear. So starting from the roots of the word, um, in old English, it's like a sudden attack of danger. Old Saxony is an ambush. German Dutch is more about danger, nor is about disaster. So we're kind of talking about quite a strong reaction to something that is dangerous or impacting to our life. But Colin, first of all, why are we talking about fear today? I
1: have a question. Um... The question I have is that, is, is fear an emotion? And the reason I asked this question is because I, I think that what I'd like to establish, first of all, is the differences between the Western perspective of fear and also the Eastern perspective of fear. Um, so for me, this would be the first step. And I think that's why I want to sort of address this subject matter, because I think that there is a difference in perception of this. And I think that you're well-versed in fear as a a Western idea and the Western idea of fear. But in the East, we've got a very, very different perspective on fear. And what I want to do is I want us to be able to, as part of this, is to just begin to sort of break down what's the difference between the Western perspective and the Eastern perspective of fear. Um, Is it actually an emotion? Um, Is fear something that's just physical or is it mental or is it emotional? i mean is there a difference between the mental the emotional physical aspect of it a manifestation of it what are the signs of fear how does it manifest within the body and i think how does it manifest not just within the body but also within the mind and are all of us actually subject to fear or are people actually immune to fear Are there people that do not actually experience fear what is you know what is it what is the link between fear and belief. So for me, there's a a kind of a whole series of things around fear. And I think that actually what's happening is that at this moment in time, we are living in a country, in a place where we're looking at fear and we're living with fear. And what I want to try and understand as part of this is I really want to understand just a little bit more about how fear is impacting us. You know, what, you know, as a society, how is it impacting us as individuals, how is fear impacting us as well? So I want to look at it from both the Western perspective, the Eastern perspective, but also want to kind of look at us and our relationship with fear today. So I don't know how this is going to go. I don't know where this is going to go. Okay, nice to see you.
0: So I think um, from a Western perspective, especially in the psychiatry perspective, I think fear is definitely very much an emotional response. There's something very instinctive about fear. And I think, as you said, from my understanding, everyone has fear because just from the root of the word that I've gone through, these are kind of our reaction to danger and dangers often lurking everywhere, even from caveman to cur- current days when you live in a the metropolis. There are always danger anywhere. And so it is reaction for it. And I think when we when I hear the word, I have emotional response to it. But- a lot of time is more uh, as well as a physical response as well so you probably i probably get a bit of heart palpitation because my heart's jumping up and down a bit i might sweat a little bit um there may be a slight tremor or really big shaking and kind of just physically reacting strongly to it because there's a lot of time that's that adrenaline rush inside the body that feels quite scary it's quite like a dread like a terror and as you said, that, that's almost like a scale of fear as well in terms of the emotional response. I as as I was researching about this, the, the few words that give me the gradient, we start from tribulation, nervousness, anxiety, dread, depre- uh, desperation, panic, horror, and then terror. So that 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 is kind of the gradient of what sounded very, very emotional to me. And that's That is the understanding that I have so far. I know you probably will have a different perspective and probably expand on it a lot more than I will.
1: Well, no, what I really like is I like what you've done because I like the Western classification. So if I look at a Western classification of fear, we've got this kind of this classification. We've got fear, anger, disgust, happiness, sadness, surprise, contempt. This kind of like these emotions kind of bundled together on the eastern side of it they're kind of interesting because what they're doing is that they are almost saying so let's say let's take um let's take you know anxiety and so you've mentioned anxiety as a form of fear but what on the east they do is they break it down and they've they've actually kind of hack it right the way away and they say well actually anxiety is fear plus imagination but it's fear plus imagination together because anxiety is a what if you know, it's almost that you're there is an anxiety within this and fear. They say, is it's fear is based on losing what you have right now. So it's not a fear of losing something. It's a fear of losing what you have right now, which means that there is actually an attachment in place and a belief system in place and a perception of something that keeps you safe in place. So you feel threatened when that is threatened, like your life, like. know do you see what i mean so what what in the east what they start to do is they actually they sort of break out and look at the combinations of those things together and that's what i find really fascinating because it, it means that what's happening is that when you're looking at something like fear fear has to be built on something it just it's it and fundamentally the root of fear according to the east is the the relationship between consciousness and matter that come together and as it comes together there's a very intense link and because there's an intense link in place, this attachment that's in place, this attachment and attachment forms the root of fear because you have this right now. That thing right now is there and you don't know about it. And the fact that you don't know means that you create an identity and you create this identity in this belief system that keeps you safe. And then you have something that threatens that. And so actually what fear is built on is it's built on your identity. It's also built on this very, very strong attachment that you don't know about. And so they kind of build this sort of hierarchy and then create this combination of different things to give a a different effect. So an effect being I've got anxiety. And so with anxiety, it becomes quite complicated because you've got the attachments in place because you want to keep yourself safe. You're also, in the, in a way, you've got the memory of the past. You've got also this jumping forwards into the future as well. What if this happens? OK, I'm really frightened of losing what I've got right now. And so almost in a way, what we're doing in yoga is that we're taking these segments and these ideas and we're, we're actually sort of seeing where do they come from, just from a different perspective. Does that make any sense to
0: Yes, um, and I, I love how you linked fear with uh, imaginations as well, because that the the almost the creativity in that sense is quite powerful. Because that, from a Western perspective, really can create fear as well. Apparently, there was a list done by a company called Go Go Up, I think um, G A L L U P, in tw- uh, thousand five. They did done the American poll. Um, top for the top 10 feared, and this is apparently based on an open-ended question for, from a thousand, sem, uh, 13 to 17 years old, so a very, very selective group of Americans. But from that group, their top fears are terrorist attack, spider, death, failure, war, criminal or gang violence, being alone, the future, and nuclear war. And I, what struck struck me by reading this list is actually some of them can be really, really real fear, like spider. I mean, in one of my clinic rooms that I usually go to nowadays, there are a massive spider. The body is like about that big. Fortunately, it's mostly behind me because I think the nest or the net is probably behind me, so I often don't see it. But my patient who, see, who face me often will shriek literally halfway through the clinic because they see the spider. Um, so things like that is real, te- uh, real fear. But I do also wonder how much of a terrorist attack um, impending death or a really terrible future is or even nuclear war are in these teenagers um, reality are they are these more constructed um, by their imagination fear are they uh, memory are they imaginations or are they actually real experience and that was something that I was really pondering because that I think in some ways quite important question is how much of the fear is created in our head um, and how important it is that we have that mechanism, but at the same time, how damaging can that mechanism be?
2: So there are two sides to fear. One is a
1: positive side and the other is a negative side. And how we utilize those also becomes very important. And I think um, yoga actually assesses, you know, actually ass- addresses this issue. Um, but before we jump into this, could you just repeat the end of what you just said? Because it was very, very powerful indeed really powerful
0: i think i might have forgotten what i've just said already yeah. i probably said something along the line that was the fear imagined or is it some related to our reality and what part of that fear is helpful and what part of that fear is damaging i think something along that line
1: and we've got this idea of external fears so we've got this because, because what you talked about with regard to um let's say a terrorist attack and it, what would be the outcome of a terrorist attack is that actually there'd be a change in your life. So there's, a, there's this kind of, there's, there's a change that comes to happen. And so this change implies that actually what we're doing is we're holding on to a reality as it is right now. And that's also to do with the spider. It's also to do with what we're doing, you know, with death, because we don't know about death. And I spent five years working in front of life. And I find it very interesting in the relationship that people have with fear and the end of their life and the behaviors that come out of that because what we also start to see is we start to see that most people do not recognize that their behaviors are laced with fear almost in a way the question that we're asking in yoga is what's under the ground because actually most people don't know they're frightened they actually don't realize they're frightened and when you are frightened you don't actually understand that you're frightened and some people actually and i've said to me many times is you know, I'm not a frightened person. I don't do fear. You know, I'm not frightened of dying. I'm not this. I'm not that. Many people actually say these things. They actually give themselves the label of this thing in place. Does that make any sense, Stanford?
0: Yes. And I wonder, in the yoga perspective, without that understanding, does does it also tell us of something about how people sometimes look for fear without realizing it? Because in my research, what was interesting is, and I also explain some of my behavior, um, there is also that adrenaline-seeking behavior, which what I said earlier on, is the fear is like a shock and adrenaline response is that flight or flight response. But some people naturally like to go to do these things like bungee jumping, like they like to um parachuting, which is kind of like the worst fear in my life, but also watching a horror movie where on the other side of the screen there's um you know, serial killer with a mask and a chainsaw running after people. These in- induce fear in us, but at the same time, it's also in some way enjoyable.
1: So, what you're saying is that actually, and, and this is what I find the interesting positive aspect of fear, is that fear can energize us into action, and actually, we can start to create this kind of almost by bungee jumping. You, you, I mean, are you facing fear head on when you're bungee jumping? Because I think that what you're starting to look at is how do we respond when we're frightened? You know, do we run away from it, Which is a common aspect of things. And we, there's avoidance techniques and tactics that we come to do. You know, like we're about to do a big presentation and we call in sick. You know, I should have done that today. I should have gone, Stanford, I can't make it today, bye. You know, so, you, you know, is there something, we we behave in a particular way, but we don't see the behaviour. And, and and they come into this runaway aspect. There's also... a, a A a kind of like almost a stuck aspect as well we can't move we can't speak we can't say anything we can't do anything um but i really like what you've just said about fear energizing us into action because actually what it what fear does is it brings our attention to the threat and it actually can help us as an emotion to begin to address the threat that's being presented does that make any sense because i and i think that for me there is that It begs the question on why so many of us have so many different perceived threats in our current environment and how or why what do we do to deal with them because actually a lot of us are living with fear when actually why are we living with fear and this for me then poses the next question around this which is to do with if I'm having a fear response based on what's happening at the moment, is it because there is a genuine threat, or is it that the feeling I've got is actually replicating a threat that's happened to me in the past and I'm then playing that threat out? Do, do, do assuming I mean? so there's, there's a patterning with regard to to fear and the threat that's going on. I don't know if that makes any sense,
0: Stanford. No, it makes a lot of sense. I'm I'm trying to um, listen and understand. But at the same time, I was taking in Kate's um, comments because she made the comment earlier on about uh, is it culturally set? And I think there is definitely a a part of fear which is very culturally learned or culturally adapted. And I think that's very much reflected on what you're saying, Colin. But at the same time, there's another perspective where fear is just very, very universal that it is what i found was apparently one of the seven universal emotions or experience that people can um experience as well as anger disgust, surprise happiness sadness and contempt so i think i think there is certain amount of conditioning that happens especially within certain culture within certain specific groups but at the same time there there is still that instinctive fear that we just kind of have and born with i don't know is that is that something that yoga perspective share because that, that we do say if there is a let's say let's take a disorder anxiety disorder panic disorder if someone in your direct family has that trait or that disorder you are slightly more likely or 50 percent more likely to have that same presentation as well so again is that um is that nurture or is that nature uh, sometimes what 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 would you say well
1: according to you I can i can only speak from a a yoga perspective is so that we have three different layers that, or intertwined layers that are kind of braided together that we're working with. One is the genetic aspect of things. You know, it's almost like someone is God-fearing. You know, there's this kind of, there's this, within this culture, there is a very sort of, there is this kind of this fear that happens. Um, so there's this sort of a genetic cultural thing. Um, give a a real example of this
2: is that it's i think yeah
1: let me move that example to one side because it's kind of like a bit of a personal one but um we've also got then our responses to how we learn how we're brought up so there's a kind of there's a genetic one then there is an educational one the educational one is very interesting because it means that um, let's say um, I was speaking to someone the other day and they said that, you know, I was brought up in a in, in quite a troubled environment because I was I was taught to, you know, that children should be seen and not heard. And I, I was put in a situation where, you know, every time I would say something, I was put in danger and that created an, an underlying pattern of fear within me. And then what I did is so to navigate this, I created numbers of different coping mechanisms, she said. So what we then find is you find that you have someone that has a kind of healthy foundation deep within them as in genetically but because of what's happened in their life they have this kind of fear that goes on and then what's happening is that they have a mechanism which starts to then operate through that so they've got these three mechanisms that are kind of weaved together that they're working with. Now the question for me is where does the fear lie within all of this? Is it actually in the genetic aspect of it, so the hereditary aspect of it. So let's say um, there was research in New York with Holocaust survivors, wasn't there? Yeah, and and there was actually sort of patterning that was shown to be proved that came out, you know, generation by generation, generation. And I was gonna give another example, which is a personal example, but I don't think it's relevant. But I think there's this genetic aspect of it, but also with regard to the behavioral aspect of it, if you had something like a, a very authoritarian upbringing, which put you in a position where you were frightened of absolutely everything and then you had a mechanism which which you then put in place that you perceive different things as threats as well so for me I think there's these three combinations that are involved and it's so heavily intertwined and also the exchanges that occur between them aren't that clear one of the biggest questions that I ask is that what is it that we're we're frightened of what is it that we're frightened of losing and is it also possible to deal with the fears that we have as well and the mechanism of fear that we have um it's kind of a for me this is a a kind of like a quite an interesting question because if fear is part of every cell of our body if it is inherent in every part of our body is there a difference between the fear that is manifest within our body and also the fear within our mind? So, can our body feel fear, but our mind can actually observe that fear that our body is expressing? Does this make any sense?
0: That's very powerful. So, but does fear give us this, give us the ability to actually look into what we are afraid of, or we can only deal with it afterward? after the fear episode
2: has finished.
1: So now you're asking a really interesting question.
0: <laughs> now, I always ask the hard question for you. and just sit here and listen.
1: It's kind of interesting because actually what you've got is you've got, um, how can I be aware and recognize an emotion takes a huge amount of awareness. And so if you're thinking about, as we've discussed with anger, Anger has a root, but quite often when you have anger, there's almost a, you, you, uh, the root of anger is that I want something, but I'm not getting what I want, which means that I have a desire that's not being fulfilled, so I become angry. So in the same way, how do we navigate fear? Um, Kate, you want to say something?
2: Please do. Please feel free. So happy.
3: Hi, everyone. Sorry, this is sort of, I'm really happy to be here. Lovely to see you, everyone. Um, I'm really interested in this topic because um, I'm researching um, fear responses in people with, as Stanford knows, um, fear responses in people living with advanced disease. Um, and uh, looking at mind-body practices and how they might support people in living with fear and I'm particularly looking at breathlessness and I think there's so much to say but I think that you know we've talked touched on death anxiety and conscious and unconscious responses to fear um, and sort of implicit and explicit fear and I think one of the things that I have observed in my patients and in my research, and I think, I mean, I think it really pervades all of society is, you know, fear is quite difficult for people to talk about and show, particularly, sorry Stanford, medical professionals, people in positions of authority, um, particularly men perhaps. Um, and so therefore when you get, so so we're all going to die, and we, we, we all don't really like to deal with this, but we are. <laughs> And of course, the yogis and the Buddhists are always reminding us of this. Um, But when you are actually very sick and you are dealing daily and constantly, maybe for 24 hours a day with chronic breathlessness or chronic pain or some sort of symptom that catches your attention so completely that your body is no longer sort of invisible to you. So my body is now invisible to me because nothing's hurting and I can breathe freely. It's just doing its job. But when you're really sick and your body is, is 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 constantly telling you it's demanding your attention then you know how how do we cope with that how do we cope with this ever-present fear of reminder of our death of our present death or or, you know it's it's coming it's here it's right in front of us because we're we're so symptomatic Mm -hmm. and I think what's really interesting is that the current in the current sort of healthcare services, there's this idea that people living with chronic illness and life-limiting illness um, are able to sort of self-manage, this is the language, you know, self-management, but it's not like that, is it? We know, uh, uh, so what I'm thinking, what I'm finding in my research is that practices like yoga, with all the different components of, of those practices, we can just, you know, there's lots of different pieces there. They're all about somehow helping us to perhaps to find that solid ground that Colin, you mentioned, some sort of sense that whatever is going on in my body, whatever is going on within, within me and around me, mm-hmm. I can find some kind of root, some sort of tap root that enables me to feel even in that moment, a sense of, my, of, of, of safety. And so, so, so my, my argument, really, my thesis is that, that this sense of safety is not something that is actually about, you know, drugs, the drugs that the doctors give me, or even being in hospital. It's about a felt sense of security yeah. that I, so, so there's a difference between a felt sense of security and objective safety. Yeah. So. Do you see what I'm... um, I feel like I'm probably
1: rambling, but... What you've just done is you've reminded me of a beautiful moment. I was teaching in hospice and I was... We were using nyasa, it was where you get people to touch parts of the body. And so I was having this lady and she was touching the shoulder, her shoulder, and running her hand down her arm towards her hand and rubbing it back up again. And so in yoga we we use lots and lots of different techniques based on people's constitution, what's going on with them. And she started crying. And I looking at her and I was are you okay? And she said, I've really felt that my body had let me down. Mm. And she just said, but actually just to touch it again. Mm. You know, the only time I ever would touch my part of my body was if I was in a shower. And actually just to really feel and touch my body when I thought that it had really let me down is actually the most amazing thing. Mm. And for me, this embodies exactly what you just said.
3: Mm.
1: Is how do we find this way for people to get this connection, this kind of stability again? Because the points of reference of stability that we've had have dissolved. Mm. And they dissolved. And what's happening is that we as practitioners we're looking at finding how do we put these things in place to find a point of stability to find something that reduces the fear responses within someone so they get just something more and part of my work there was I realized that people didn't ask the questions towards the end of their life that I thought they'd ask you know they wouldn't sort of do the things that I thought you know, I would do towards the end of my life because they, they were so consumed, as you said, with what's going on. You know, it was everything was, it was the whole fear, everything was all consuming. Mm. And actually that prevented them, I think, from having the best quality of life that they could have.
3: No, absolutely, and, and just to speak to that, I think that one of, so one of the out, one of the kind of recommendations or outputs from my work is to train healthcare professionals working with people at the end of life. To use what I'm calling foundational skills, which are essentially these skills, these yoga skills, these skills from the mind-body practices, because actually I would say this stuff is actually about being human. If we just take it, if we take any cultural reference away from it, this is about human to human supporting each other to feel safe and loved um, at times of crisis when the fear is at its most, um, you know, at its most sort of. You know, um, the Buddhists call it selfing. don't they you know this kind of like you know the the fear is everywhere the fear is me the fear is 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 my whole experience um and and you know if we can as healthcare professionals if we can create this interpersonal sense of of rootedness and safety and groundedness and it can be non-verbal this as you know this is this can be completely non-verbal it can be touch it can be breathing so I, I would say that you know this this I suppose you know death anxiety and fear around end of life I mean of course it's you know, the glaciers, the root fear. Um, I think yoga can be the, the these practices can be extremely well adapted for for a for a western healthcare setting. Anyway, I'll shut up
1: now. No, no, not at all. I, I really everything that you've said has been brilliant. And in fact, what you've just done is you've reminded me of something quite special, is that there's two two interesting texts. One is the Sankhya Karika, um, and what the Sankhya Karika does is is it says that the purpose for meditation is to get a glimpse of the other side so that you're prepared right now in this world for what's to come so that your exit is as graceful as possible do you see what I mean so there is there is a reduction of fear towards that point so it gives that as the purpose of meditation and I find that really quite fascinating because hmm. it, it means that the meditative state that you're creating is one where you are looking to prepare yourself for the states when everything is coming up and being presented to you so that you can navigate very clearly your route through.
3: Can I say one last thing? <laughs> Sorry about that, which is just that, and I think what's so interesting about that is you, you've obviously worked in palliative care and I've spent you know 15 years working in palliative care. It, it, it's so interesting how, because the palliative care movement was in the U- UK, was founded by a Christian a Catholic okay. Cicely Saunders mm. and that mo- so so there's a, there's a deep core spiritual um, foundation to palliative care um, and yet And they talk a lot about advanced care planning. So preparing people for the end of life, you know, getting in early so that people can discuss their fears. And, you know, this whole sort of psychospiritual piece is is, is part of the kind of remit of palliative care. And yet it's totally Christian in orientation, which of course alienates a vast number of people. And we live in a multicultural society. And, um, you know, people are, we know this from the evidence, people are prevented from coming through the door because it's called something like St. Joseph's. And mm-hmm. it's full of white people, uh, and there's a cross on the wall. Yes. And, and my argument is, is let's open, let's open this up. Let's let's take, let's keep the spirituality, but let's ditch the, let's mm-hmm. ditch the, the crosses. Now, you know, we don't need to put a Buddha in its place, but let's just keep this wide open. Because what you're talking about, this preparation, mm-hmm. is actually palliative care. That's yeah. the spiritual element of palliative care. And so mm-hmm. yoga, the, the yoga and palliative care fit absolutely beautifully together. Philosophically, they fit together. Um, But there's huge resistance, cultural resistance.
1: And also what we've got is um, the the Bhagavad Gita. And the Bhagavad Gita is beautiful, because what it does is it actually goes through the whole process of preparation towards death, giving the directing someone to how they can prepare for the the time and the place and how they're going to, to die. And what they're going to do and, and what i really love there is the whole all the stepping process towards that how actually you're prepared for doing that and i think that is a kind of it's, it's fascinating because it, it means that it, it's it's talked about it's presented it's open it makes you consider those things whilst you're alive so that actually you don't kind of you don't just sort of disappear off to the side and then you know you go through this quiet process and just have to go through it on your own it's actually forms part of the the structure of your you know of society of your culture um and it's as welcome as every aspect of your life from birth right the way through to the whole thing and so if you look at also the rituals within the East as well, all the rituals are associated with transitioning from one point to another. And the view here at the end of life is transition. And the transition is tainted by glacier, by fear. And it, it and it affects quality of life. It affects how we will, you know, it, it, it brings up so much for everyone at the end of their life. Yeah,
3: I mean, sorry, I don't just no, don't, don't, i don't know whether it's only this is my job like this <laughs> <There's> <laughs> i mean no, so just saying, there's,
1: no, there's no plan here there's just, <laughs> just, just <a> i'm <laughs> I
3: mean, coming i don't want to but i've just spent all day so i'm currently um at my the university i'm i'm based in a, a palliative care research center mm. and i wish i wish all my colleagues could hear this conversation because it's so interesting how the medical model is so dominant and and, and in spite of um you know, in, st- in spite of the fact that we talk endlessly in this model about, you know, we must talk about we must think about holistic care. We must think about person centred care and we must think about spiritual care. Actually, this is all very fuzzy. Mm. This is all terribly fuzzy. So because it's really fuzzy, it's quite difficult to measure and evaluate and all of that. So it's sort of pushed to the side and people like me are saying, no, 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 this is really important to people. This is really important to people and people do want to talk about this and they want to talk about it not necessarily in a yogi way or not necessarily in a christian way or not necessarily in a buddhist way or any of those labels but what you're saying colin is absolutely central to human experience we will all be born and we will all die and we have a number of breaths and um we are some people are more prepared some people are less prepared but in this field of palliative care um it's our job, it's our remit to support people through this transition um, in the most in a way that is right for them. And I think that, as you say, it's so it's so carefully laid out in, in the text. It's so, it's so beautifully described and, and all the things to think about, and and I suppose I feel it's just such a shame that that this this culture, this language, the language of yoga, the language of those texts is not more, in a sense, welcome. Um, Even when now, you know, there are increasingly more people from different backgrounds and different ethnicities working in the field, still, still, it's very dominated by the medical model and by the Christian model, which is, you know, there's life, there's death, there's the other place, you know, um, you know, there's heaven and hell and, you know, do you know what I mean? That kind of dualism is so, is so present still, and it's such a shame. So I suppose I'm I'm sort of welcoming this to hear you speaking because it's so. I, I've been thinking,
0: sorry, I, I was just saying, I was just listening to your conversation. I, I've been thinking about this recently as well, because I was just teaching a medical student recently, and we were discussing what is my experience like teaching um, working in psychiatry. And I I share that because I as a lot of you know, I used to be a surgeon as well. I used to work in the surgical model, was used to work in the medical model. And I said actually working in psychiatry sometimes can be incredibly non-satisfactory. Cause in medicine, in surgery, you I I I I cut open my patient, you know therapeutically speaking and then do something and then stitch it back up or give a certain medication i will see the effects pretty instantaneously i know what the blood loss is like i know what the recovery is like i know what the blood pressure has changed to because of the medication or the treatment i've given that's that's a gravitation gravitation may be the wrong word but it's almost like a reward of showing what my work and what my efforts has reaped towards um psychiatry ssk as, as used so beautifully said, so it's incredibly fuzzy it it's so mucky it's somewhere that is in the middle where i used to see my patients maybe uh, once a month once every three months in a community setting and i don't necessarily know if the medication i've given or the talking therapy i've offered or just the chat that we had during the clinic session what kind of effect has it given like what 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 was the result of it? What what has he or she or they taken away with? And what was the kind of a follow-on effect? And I think when I was listening to you two chatting about this fear and um how to integrate it into the medical model, I think it may be especially palliative care. I'm not a palliative care physician, but it almost felt like because there's a lot more stress about the interpe- interpersonal relationship, but also intrapersonal relationships, So both external and internal, the air is so much more fuzzy. And as you said, it's so much harder to measure, but it's not just for the governing body. It's actually for ourselves. It's, did we do a good job or did we do a terrible job and actually made it worse? Um, and how do we know? And sometimes I think that th- this next part is reflecting from my own practice from yoga and learning from Colin. It's actually, first of all, you have to be confronted with a lot of your own internal conflicts and internal problems and issues or patterns that you have to kind of, go through first and that again is a not easy thing unless you're guided by a really good expert so I think I think that may be partly why there are resistance because people are challenged in in this fuzzy ground that is fear that is scary that is frightful um and again fear is not just real it can be imagined it can be you know someone say something and you think, oh my god they're challenging me straight away and that is why it's, fearful to incorporate this into a lot of other of my colleagues work
3: yeah there's fear everywhere isn't there there's this it's called you know it's systemic it's systemic fear and i mean there's again there's evidence to show just thinking about breathlessness there's evidence to show that if you are watching somebody who is breathless i mean imagine you're watching somebody gasping for breath that that triggers the same brain mechanisms the same fear mechanisms the same fear part of your brain as if you were actually breathless yourself so fear is catching. Fear is 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 transmuted yeah. through our bodies, through our affects to each other. So yeah. that's why, again, we have a responsibility as, as yoga teachers, as humans, to maintain that tap root of, of 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 kind of groundedness, this grounded state, because that is that is also catching. It's like a kind of pushback. Um, so in a sense, maybe that's you know part of our job as yogis is is to you know is just to provide that 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 kind of pole star of embodied safety Um, because the other way if everyone's going around you know frightened defensive shut down those fear responses that's just perpetuating it throughout well you know within you know within medicine within society within within our everything
1: it's under it's underlying in everything and if you look at the responses like conflict responses if you look at um avoidance if you look at sabotage techniques if you start to look at all of this what you see is fear forms part of it if you look at it fear being immobilizing so if, if fear immobilizes someone so it's, it's a lot like um there's there's a set of rabbits here and what they do is that when an animal comes at them they just they turn on their backs lie on their backs and they they, they they have this response where they just immobilize themselves so that actually they stop the chase they stop everything straight away and they just immobilize everything and what they do is they don't breathe they don't make a squeak they don't so they're breathless there's no voice they're immobile and so fear just runs through the whole thing and they just they're waiting for the predator just to lose interest so that they can then absolutely peg it off and get out of there but i think that what happens in our society is that the predator doesn't peg off, you know, doesn't leave so that they can peg off. I think there's a, you know, that there's a, the immobilization stays there. There's a lack of voice, so they can't speak, there's a they can't breathe. And I think these things are very, very tied together because I think that the fear to find words to articulate that we are frightened, like you mentioned, Kate, earlier, being vulnerable, is I, I did a seminar recently and did a seminar on this subject matter with regard to leadership and getting people in your teams to ask for help and there's this one guy on the team and he turned around and he said something very very powerful indeed he said you know you know how can i ask for help without losing face and i just I just kind of like, I I just, it was the most powerful question because it was all there in the question, everything was there, all the fear, the capacity not to speak, the way that his structure was, his back was hard, the shoulders were rounded, there was this, you know, the whole thing was just, he, he embodied fear.
3: I mean, I, I'm sorry, I'm just all, I, because there's a gap, and I, but I, I, I think I think that I mean it's really it's so interesting to me. I mean, today, just as an example, I've been in my my university, and a young doctor who's doing a, she's doing a she's doing an academic, um, like a you know coming out of clinical work to do a, a study, mm-hmm. and she's this really smart. I don't know how old she is, but late twenties. Um, she's come over from Nigeria. She's doing a study on. Um, cancer, um, caregivers of people with advanced cancer in rural Africa, amazing study, really interesting. And she's presenting to the group and I can see from her body language, I'm just in the room, you know, one of the PhD students. I can see that she's terrified because of her body language and I'm observing her shallow breathing and she's got it all together. But I can I can smell it, you know, because I'm attuned to this. And um, so she stands up and she gives the most extraordinary presentation and I'm just like, oh my God, how did you do that in four months, you know, bam, bam, data, you know, fantastic, brilliant piece of work and she, she sits down, and everyone's going, you know, clap, 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 a few kind of questions and then on to the next thing. And At the end of the session, she was sort of packing up and I went over to her and I said, God, that was just an amazing presentation. You know, how fascinating. And she'd been talking about traditional medicine in Africa and I was interested in that. And she said, oh, was it all right? And I said, yes. And she said, I was so scared. I was so terrified. And I said, what were you scared of? You have done an amazing piece of work in some really short piece of time, you was like a swan, you know, gliding. And, and she said, well, and we, we got talking and basically she started talking about her imposter syndrome. Now we all know what that's like, right? <laughs> but I thought it was so interesting because she was able to be vulnerable with me because I clearly gave out the signals that I was safe. We were alone in the room. and um, But it was so interesting because I see this a lot in the, this environment A lot of people, really clever people doing amazing work, but they all inside feel like they're doing really badly and they're actually really shitty and they're all terrified. And it gave, I suppose what I'm trying to say is that this is sort of, it's such a shame that everybody's so scared. Mm -hmm. And if we could just call it out and just be like human with each other and it's okay to be scared and it's okay to feel like you haven't got it all together and that you're an imposter. You know, wouldn't the world be a nicer place? So I suppose what I'm saying is we should talk about fear and we should Mm. explore it with each other. And like you said, you know, in meetings, in contexts where we're on show and we're expected to be tough, we should call it out. I don't know. I don't know if that's relevant.
1: No, no, no. It's it's, it's incredibly Mm -hmm. relevant because what you've done is you've mentioned all of these things. Everything that we've covered has been mentioned in the story you gave with regard to what what reason is the person frightened you know there's what we frightened of and also that she was honest with you because she felt safe she felt supported she felt that there was a space to be vulnerable and that is also really important as well because i think that actually most of us in our current society don't feel that we have that space and that support to be vulnerable which is why fear is so endemic within the whole of society and if we do have a voice or if we do find a voice often that voice is either shut down or it's not heard and that also becomes important as well because it 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 means that we then that fear then grows it's combined with imagination which is an activity of the mind and yoga And it's combined with our memories which is also an activity of the mind and it grows into anxiety and it grows into other conditions as well so what you're saying kate and and stanford both of you it's very very powerful within what i'm seeing happening and i wish i really 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 wish that and, and lauren what you're saying you can say something please lauren
4: oh I was just saying because I, I had an anxiety attack last week like came out of nowhere and I think mm. it was just like the build-up of like me and my tv I've been working from home yay <laughs> mm. um but I feel like part of it was because of like my grandpa has cancer my mom has had some stuff and then like work my part-time mm. job you know mm. just everything just builds up and I think part of it was I don't even know what triggered it I still don't even know like I was on Instagram just wasting some time and I was like all of a sudden anxiety (laughs) and I still have no idea Mm -hmm. what caused it but I feel like fear did play a role because I don't know you know with my grandpa what's happening nor with my mom's Mm -hmm. treatment with her stuff which I mean hers isn't life-threatening or anything but you know it's still medical and unknown oh what's the next step and you know, I think it was just a buildup of all that and the fear of unknown is what just mm. caused it just going on Instagram. <laughs> yeah.
1: And, and you you work in the medical profession, don't you?
4: Yeah, I'm a dietitian at a children's hospital here in Kansas City.
1: Mm. So you, I find it interesting to just because for me. For me, I I look at in yoga, I look a lot about processing and how we process emotions uh, or how we avoid processing emotions. And
4: I love to avoid things. I'm good at that. I'm like, oh, (laughs) argument. I'm going to
1: exit. What I see is that if we. If we avoid stuff, and I was a great avoider as well. Uh, i'm
4: still good at it i'm like oh we're fighting no have we talked about cheese you know i'm like (laughs)
1: exactly
2: like
4: that person it's like oh argument well i work part-time at a community center here in kansas city Mm. and like people will just like come at us like you know if like a fitness machine is broke i'm like yes i made sure when i came in today i wanted to ruin your day you got it or you know it's just one of those things where you know it's just all that filled up I think as well and I mean on Saturday when I worked this lady she was like she literally just like came at us and I was just like first of all I'm not the girl for this because I will not hold back (laughs) like I I try to ease the conversation you know and then I'm just like it's like like American baseball three strikes you're out (laughs) and um but, you know, it's one of those, when it comes to that stuff, depending on what or who I'm arguing with, fear kicks in and anxiety kicks in. Mm. Um, like in 2016 here in America was a huge nightmare for me. Like my anxiety was just terrible. Mm. Um, and because I don't like hate and I don't like anger. And it, that's like, oh, it's just all it was. And I'm just not for
1: that. <laughs> so what you're talking about is quite interesting because it's this, it's the external influence and that external influence triggers all of the different components within you and it works uniquely for each person so you've got this external influence this this what's happening in the, around you in society and then it goes right the way in and it starts <laughs> to trigger all these different things within you inside you and stanford this is within the western medical model is, is there any anything else about fear um or triggers of fear that we couldn't we, we need to know about
0: um there there are quite a lot on my research and i now got to a stage of conversation where I, i'm not sure which part i should share now because it's it's very um different direction I love this um if you really think about it in the western medical model I think in the western philosophical model this fits completely well mm-hmm. I think within the medical model maybe I'll share this one thing that I found which is a model um suggested by Carl Albuquerque um it's something that he did in 2007 he mm-hmm. said there's five basic fear and I, I found that quite interesting because he basically give a hierarchy of fear where the bottom one is actually ex- extinction So that is actually the bottom level fear where we kind of lose our existence. The next one up is mutilation. I'm guessing it's actually more scary that you lose part of yourself um, rather than losing the whole of yourself because you're still there and suffering. And there's the loss of autonomy. So almost like the loss of your boundaries and um, loss of like being immobilized, being not be able to move or paralyzed, feeling entrapped and that can be situational as well. And then that was the separation um abandonment rejection, which is the next level, and highest ones ego death. The reason why I thought of this part of the research was, as Kay was saying earlier on um and also Lauren as well, there are a lot of the time we think fear is very, very physical, it linked to physical issues that we um we talk about body parts talk about death we all think about it very kind of physical term but actually a lot of the time when you look at the hierarchical fear and I'm sure it's very very well researched it's about ex- existence it's about existential it's about ego it's about our mentality it's about autonomy and separation of relationship and I think that is actually quite profound because then it it helps the person to get into that muddy area where Actually, your fear is much more than just about the spider in the corner. The fear is much more than about the snake or the, the rope that you mistaken with the snake or certain thing or certain part of pain in your body. I have a patient just today, actually. Uh, again, I, at the moment I'm working at addiction service. He said his only problem is physical. There's no psychological issue. psychologically he is strong he can do this and i keep saying yes i'm, I'm really really see that you're physically psychologically strong that's why you're here seeing me today and stuff on the street doing drugs but also at the same time there's a perspective where I'm not sure the problem is purely physical. I think there might be a psychological and deeper component to it as well. So I think I think I may say, yeah, that will be the thing that I learned from all my research in fear and my work is actually having to ex- having to share that perspective with people at work. Mm. And I'll share that often now, Kate. <laughs> um,
1: thank you, Stanford. It's, it's, when I first um, started studying and looking at fear, um, some of you will remember this, is that I, I was asked a question, and the question is, what's the opposite of fear? So any, any answers? So what's the opposite of
2: fear? It's belief or faith. Exactly.
1: It's interesting, isn't it? because both of them are quite interesting because because fear has almost in a way a negative connotation you've it's got a positive aspect to it and belief and faith is a kind of like a positive aspect to it and there's for me there's a big tie-up between fear and belief and how those two things combine together and how we can use belief to navigate fear but also how you can feed the fear with a belief as well so that also for me is quite interesting as well so the power of belief either to increase or decrease fear or to feed fear or to starve fear so i think it's a kind of uh, kate
3: yeah no, i think i think one of the things that we talk about the kind of um the fears the, the different fears the fear of so one of the things that's come out in my research is that the fear that the loss of control mm. so you know i have I have a body, I'm going about my business, and I lose control.
2: I lose control
3: of my body and I I have lost and and therefore my sense of self is is called Mm. into question and everything else and fear. I'm in fear because it's everything is unpredictable now. I can't rely on my body, I can't rely on my environment. Mm. And so I think belief and maybe hope gives us some element again of control it may not take away the source of the fear it may Mm. not fix my broken body or my problems with my mum's sickness or my terrible job or whatever it is Mm. it doesn't take away that that but it gives me some element of control it maybe shows me a path Mm. you know I have hope I have belief and I therefore can negotiate my fear with a little bit more control and that gives me back some sense of dignity and some sense of intactness mm. and that sense of intactness is really powerful and really important so Ardie lang talked about that stanford will maybe know i don't know anybody knows him but he mm. talked about the intactness of the body that the not just the physical body but the sense of intactness mm. and when and that's threatened by all sorts of things like you know when my when i you know when my boss is saying something to me and I don't understand and I feel stupid and I might look stupid and maybe I am stupid, suddenly my attack you know what i mean so or, or my body you know my body's broken down so so I think you're right about this belief and hope and and that can show us that can give us some sort of sense of dignity and and a path and control
1: and, and, and this for me, me yeah but this for me it, it, it brings almost to a circle this firstly the defining aspect in yoga of fear firstly the first thing is that it's losing what you have right now so it's not losing something it's losing what you have right now which means to lose a body movement you, you have a relationship with something right now and you know it's almost or to lose a partner there's a fear that comes up because it's this it's understanding the links that you have in place right now that keep you safe, whether that's being able to move, whether it's being able to, you know, have a relationship with someone. It, it, it's that thing. So for me, uh, this is a bin It's losing what you have right now. It's described in yoga as it. It flows, which means there's a fluid aspect to fear. It's a watery aspect. It means that it can find a level within you if you allow it to. If you're not waterproof, it's a fluid thing that is, it goes through anything that's porous, and it's it flows even for the wise. It means you can be have as much wisdom as you know. You can have done anything, but you will still be subject to fear. Everyone is subject to fear. And so when I look at the definition of this um, and I look at how it's defined, it it, it kind of summarises everything that we've been discussing today, Stanford.
0: And I think uh, since you've taken the definition of fear, I take the your definition of opposite of fear, which is faith and belief. And I quite like what Cave has said about putting in certain things that make you feel safe again, almost like control. But I also add the word encourage which I used to think is the opposite of fear as well. And I know, Colin, when you talked about this, and I, I, in my research, there, there was another phrase that came across that I really love, so I'll end with that, which is courage is not really the opposite of fear. Fear is the co- one of the conditions that makes exercising courage possible. So I think courage is one of the things that hopefully with faith and belief, we can exercise and help to combat that something that scare even the wisest.
1: Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Really, it's right. really interesting, because really the link between faith and courage is is, is documented in Yoga Sutra it, is that you know you virya yeah it has to be faith in this courage, you know the courage has to come from somewhere, so yeah, amazing. So can I say thank you so much to everyone today, Stanford? Kate, thank you, Lauren, thank you, everyone else. thank you so, so much. Um, it's really, really good to see you all. um we were just toying with what we discussed next time we meet in a couple of weeks, we were toying with sweating, we were speaking about power, we were, I know, we, we don't know which direction we're going to go in, so it's going to be a surprise and we'll let you know within the next 48 hours, hopefully. Um, so see you guys in, in two weeks time. Thank you so much for coming. And I get to plug my book. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so. My anxiety baby sweat. <laughs> yeah, Good lead in. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Thanks, guys.
2: Take care.